Hello and welcome to the New Year's edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. I hope you all had an excellent, and if nothing else, a peaceful holiday period. Contrary to popular belief, and even a line in my favourite Christmas movie, Gremlins, suicide rates do not proportionately increase during this period. However, it's as good a time as any to highlight the hidden enemy of depression. For those of you who are feeling stressed or down, please reach out to those you trust. There is nothing strong about keeping it inside when you feel you need to talk. I know that several of my listeners and those in the extended community of martial artists have very kindly offered their support through public posts on social media. In truth, I have quite an introverted side and I'm very happy with my own company. I love reading, I love writing and I'm very used to solo training. But I understand that we're a social species and I have nothing but admiration for those who are willing to help fight alongside our comrades in art and anyone else for that matter by just offering to be there. Right, I am just kicking out the dregs of a seasonal cold, so please excuse me if this episode is less audible than normal. Despite this minor inconvenience, also please stick around for the outro section of this show as I have some excellent recommendations and messages for you all. This special New Year episode is reserved for questions I have requested from listeners. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and have helped contribute to the show. The questions do my listeners credit as they have gone after subjects I think are often ignored or too often brushed over in martial arts subculture. I originally intended my previous show to be the last of the Animal Title series of podcasts, but given the nature of these questions, I couldn't resist naming it The Way of the Elephant. I hope you enjoy the show. First up, I would like to thank Richard Markham from Keele, Wisconsin, USA, and my fellow podcaster Gretchen Carlson of Martial Journeys of Madison, also in Wisconsin, USA, for their questions relating to my views on teaching realistic child self-protection. Richard asked me a few questions. He first said, I would very much like you to talk about your opinions on teaching self-defense, personal safety and security, and martial arts to children. What should and should not be included in the class curriculum? Well, I restrict very young children to chase games with information I layered in regarding accessing safe places and to make use of obstacles. Going against type, I would argue that four to six-year-olds are not going to absorb or properly apply many direct hard skill self-defense techniques and tactics. There are basic yelling drills you can do. A lot of the work at this stage will be building fundamental behaviors such as understanding personal space, knowing where to be when you're lost, and also understanding about looking people directly in the eyes to defeat the bystander effect. When you think about what is generally recommended and what is instinctively done in the household when raising young children, self-defense training should be in alignment with that. Hard skills should be largely made up of desensitization through attribute training, such as positional ground grappling, That's ground grappling positions, pins, escapes, using the guard, but with no submissions. It should all be fun games, learning to scramble, and very importantly, learning to get back to the feet as quickly as possible. Then you can use some simple focus mitt drills. Again, this is more the time to get them used to coaching one another, hitting targets accurately. 
Again, I'm very much driven by teaching a method that is all about putting objectives front and foremost. But when you're looking at very young children, this information is just not going to be processed in the way that you would expect six years and up to. Soft skills need to be reinforced with simple lost procedures and realistic reference points of likely people they might go to for help. From ages 7 to 10, training becomes far more direct and explicit. I gauge the levels of contact in the pressure tests to be in alignment with a typical judo and boxing club dealing with children of the same age. Safety equipment needs to be used when necessary and for the most part the pressure test should be directed towards older and more experienced students rather than each other. This is a key point I will go over later. This helps monitor the safety levels better with the older more experienced students keeping their level of pressure to just above the younger students. Soft skills should be age appropriate in line with what is being taught in the national educational curriculum. Over this age and into adolescence we can start creating a modified version of teen and adult style self-protection. This is largely covered in my When Parents Aren't Around ebook. Richard further elaborates, at what age is it appropriate to introduce techniques that would be considered lethal force? For example, the rear naked choke, guillotine choke, the armbar, striking to vital areas of the body, for example, the eyes, throat and groin. Okay, so there are two things we need to take into consideration when looking at training children in realistic hard skills. That is self-defense as it is defined. Firstly, can all techniques be taught safely to children? And secondly, can children be relied upon to use them responsibly? My simple answer to both is yes. However, simple is not always easy. Virtually all basic self-defense and martial arts techniques might be considered to be lethal. For example, concussive techniques are fight stoppers simply by the fact that you knock somebody out, or you knock somebody unconscious, or you put somebody in a concussive state, you've got more of a chance to escape than you would do if you do something that is reliant on pain or some form of psychological trauma during a fight. Many people have been seriously injured or killed after receiving a basic punch and then striking a hard object when falling. So if you want to look at strike-based martial arts at their most basic, from lesson one, from when you teach a reverse punch, from when you teach a cross or a jab or any concussive technique, chain punching maybe in Wing Chun, the list goes on. Any of those techniques executed correctly on a person can result in somebody's death and it often has not saying it's common, it's far more common that people come out of fights and they're okay, but there has been plenty of cases where people have been concussed and then they've died than when they've been delivered one of the so-called lethal strikes that we list in, in martial arts. My great-great-grandfather, I'm sure I've mentioned before in one of these shows, was killed by being punched. We think now was in a bare-knuckle gypsy fight uh, in Kent and hit his head on a hard floor. Same might be said about throws and sweeps. If you could throw somebody and they land wrong, again, that has happened plenty of times as well. And also need to take in consideration a child's typical mental state. A child's brain, and when I say a child, we're talking about all pre-adolescence and even into early adolescence, a child's brain is not fully developed until they've matured into adulthood. Many countries, including my own, England and well, England and Wales specifically actually, recognise children as young as ten to be the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Australia, and there's plenty of listeners in Australia for this podcast, also sets it at 10, but has a presumption rebuttal of a child being incapable of committing a crime under 14. 33 states of the USA, so again, I know I've got a large listenership in the USA, they set no minimum age, whereas the minimum age for federal crimes is 11. 
Now, I could go on, but we live in a time where science is telling us that, at the very least, pre-adolescents have not yet developed the prefrontal cortex areas of their brain. For criminology buffs, that is the region of the brain many have argued is often damaged or impaired in serial killers and recreational murderers. So that is a common defence that's put forward by psychiatrists and psychologists defending um, using the mental damage defence for killers that they haven't got a fully developed frontal cortex when it's been damaged. And if you take that in perspective, children haven't developed that simply because they haven't reached an age where that has fully matured or so it therefore hasn't fully developed. Children under the age of 14 have usually fully developed the emotional areas of their brain, yet lack the capacity for deep reasoning. This is often the legal defence put forward for children standing trial for violent crimes, such as in the case of 14-year-old Jerome Ellis, who, along with his 23-year-old brother Joshua, killed their stepfather. We should keep this in mind when teaching children combative techniques. I have taught an easily justified preemptive strike in front of head teachers. Context is important, and teaching children context, along with a greater understanding of how they will feel in a stressful situation, is paramount. Children are often formally taught social responsibility around the age of eight. This is also the time when they're taught to properly cross the road. Going back to what I said earlier, we need to tie in our self-defence training with what has been concluded to be a reasonable time for children to be taught greater responsibility to others and independence. Children are more at risk of violence than adults and are more vulnerable by definition. They face the likelihood of violence in some form whenever they go to school. They're targets for both child and adult predators. I argue that they deserve to know how to effectively defend themselves as anyone. It seems reasonable that if we're going to expose them to the risks of violence, that we should educate them on how to handle these risks in a realistic manner. Teaching a child how to choke or strangle a resisting opponent for the sake of winning a competition might be considered to be unethical by some of my friends. This is the argument put against a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu competition, which keeps in submission techniques being at the core of this particular sport, yet its mother art of judo have taken all these out. I do not dismiss the argument against the use of strangulation and any form of submission technique in children's competition. Indeed, there was once an isolated case of a 14-year-old who strangled his older cousin to death during a wrestling fight at a party. However, this was quite an anomaly. If we change the context of a child needing this technique to save one of their friends from a vicious assault, I think there's a very good moral justification for learning these techniques. And if you're going to learn them properly, you have to learn them under pressure. How would a child use a choke in a self-defense situation, you ask? Given that our priorities are to teach children to avoid, exit or stun and run from situations, it seems strange that they might need to learn a move like a rear naked choke. I do not teach it as part of my basic 5-10 to 10 hour course for young people. However, this isn't to say I don't endorse it as a self-defence technique for responsible children. So just to go back on that, I'm not saying I believe that children are scientifically can be proven to be responsible in pre-adolescence, just to get that clear. Anyway, chokes, unlike strikes, are easier to scale up in a self-defence situation and scale down for that matter. For example, you can put someone in an effective choke position and will have a good deal of control over the person long before the move is tightened to its ultimate end. When we teach children self-defence, we're empowering them with skills to assess risks sensibly that could save their lives. We teach them when it is appropriate to strike preemptively and to judge situations. This should be reflected through their training under strong adult guidance and tutoring. After all, a lot of our education 
uh, is in a degree of social conditioning. Uh, this is what, again, what a lot of schooling is about, but also a lot of the training that we do back at home with, with our children. We expect them to have manners. We expect them to have a good moral compass. And uh, these are all things that we do our best to try and install them back in the home. And it should therefore be able to be carried over in self-defense. I've had child students who have grown up to become successful and law-abiding citizens who lost interest in their martial arts self-protection training when they hit their teens, but later used these techniques such as a rear naked choke, to defend others when they were young adults. Furthermore, even if the use of chokes wasn't an important intervention self-defense tool or a useful restraining tactic that can be gradually increased, I think there is a valid argument that children need to be familiar with defending against a choke or strangle. This is only going to happen if they train the technique. It reminds me of my decision to remove takedowns from all basic self-defense courses because of the difficulty of applying them under pressure and the likelihood of ending up on the ground if you do. However, I quickly discovered that my anti-grappling techniques were not being absorbed well by new students when they had no grappling base, a base that could only be learned from training takedowns. For example, the double leg takedown is not your typical attack technique from an untrained predator. However, a rugby tackle or an American football tackle is more likely, but also simply grabbing hold of a person's legs to pick them up is not an unlikely attack technique. And learning how to defend from double leg takedown, which is one of the simplest ways to learn takedown defense, prepares a student for this type of attack. Someone far better qualified than me needs to do a good survey and data comparison analysis of reports on the irresponsible use of martial arts or self-defense training by children on one another versus reports on non-trained physical abuse perpetrated against minors by their peers and adults. At present, there are martial arts schools in virtually every town in the developed world and we certainly have children being physically bullied or abused in every town in the developed world. I am not seeing an epidemic of martial arts connected incidents. They seem pretty rare, especially since the press are quick to pick up on them and social media is fast to broadcast fights amongst young people. However, physical abuse against children isn't showing any signs of lessening. Just as the vast majority of law-abiding and kind-natured martial artists often disempower themselves with an ignorant and disproportionate fear of the law if they defend themselves or others. There are too many good children deprived of vital life skills for fear that they will misuse them. Meanwhile, the human predators, both adult and child, do what they've always done with little regard for repercussions. We need to give the right people permission to fight back. To close this part of the discussion regarding responsibility in children, I believe the onus is on the teacher to a. make a reasonable assessment of a child's character, b teach any technique within the context of understanding the implications of using this technique and c train under pressure followed by honest discussion a good self-protection course and a good martial arts lesson should be grounded in responsibility then there is the big elephant in the room regarding the risk of concussion that can result from any impact-based pressure work or sparring the medical association of any country is not happy with boxing or any sport that centres on concussing an opponent, no matter the age of the participant. The same medical associations will also tell you that they have a special concerns for children entering into sports that run the risk of causing concussions. This is not a debate any wise full contact martial artist walks into with a lot of confidence. On a podcast that unashamedly cheerleads science and will come down on the side of medical professionals against the huge amount of quackery and pseudoscience that undermines martial arts credibility, it would be wrong for me to not acknowledge the validity of the medical profession's argument. Therefore, 
we engage in contact activities understanding the risks. There is something of a trade-off that is down to the judgment of the individual. In order to train for reality, one needs to train realistically. This means the likelihood of minor injuries and the risk of greater injuries. My personal view is that we make these judgments all the time with far less rewarding and justifiable activities. Martial arts do not score highly on any country on the list of activities where children are injured in comparison with other leisure pursuits, including technically non-contact games like basketball and baseball, as well as playground games and pursuits like bicycling, roller skating, tobogganing and skateboarding. However, when we consider what typically constitutes a martial arts or children's self-defence class, it's little surprising. The vast majority of children who attend such activities will be amongst those who do not spar, or if they do, engage in a highly restrictive sport that resembles a one-on-one -on -one version of tag, stroke, tig, or it. This has little connection to real fighting. In fact, children will often demonstrate this by the totally different way they fight their siblings and their peers outside of the training gym. The occasional naturally gifted student brimming with self-confidence might scare off the odd rival with a balatic display of high-kicking propaganda, but most would quickly end up in a messy flurry of haymakers, primal grappling and instinctive brawling, with victory being largely based on attributes not taken from formal martial arts training. I have to say, as a side note, there is an entirely separate discussion about the realities of so-called light and semi-contact combat sport competition in general, regardless of age. At least those who engage in full contact sports know what they're getting involved in and are under no illusion that their opponent will be controlling their techniques. With all this being said, full contact strike based martial arts are generally trained using light contact. Students are taught by qualified instructors to keep the contact down low. It's normally very much based on a sort of a touch contact, light contact basis, even though they're doing full contact techniques. Uh, it gets a little bit complicated, but um, there are plenty of YouTube videos demonstrating how this is done. If you go to Thailand, for example, where you have the ferocious sport of Muay Thai and competitors fighting on a weekly basis, go to their gyms and you'll find a lot of time when it comes to sparring, they go very, very light. It is very controlled. So it's not like as if uh, you're expecting children and indeed adults going in there and uh, exchanging hard blows on a very, very regular basis. So it is full contact training, but there is a lot of control there. Moving on to the actual impact development itself and striking objects hard on a regular basis can cause deformation and a range of problems with the still developing bones of children. However, impact development is a big part of adult self-defense training as far as I'm concerned. There is no point in teaching preemptive striking if you're not going to teach the striker to hit hard and hit hard regularly. Children still should be shown the mechanics of effective striking but their hands should be wrapped and gloved for punching at all times. They shouldn't be put under anything like the intensity of adult training. Palm strikes are a good alternative as a substitute in regular practice. However, none of this training should be seen as a conditioning exercise. We don't want to be aiming to condition a child still developing bones and tissue, just sharpening their body mechanics. At this point, I'd like to draw your attention to my friend Peter Jones's book, Ninja Nurse, on why he doesn't teach children joint locks. He makes a very educated and compelling argument that is backed up by solid experience and science, not to mention x-rays. Does that mean this part of a child's training should be completely removed from their syllabus? Not necessarily. When it comes to sparring and training with one another, we can teach them to secure the position without actually completing the lock as any Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo and submission grappling exponent will tell you, position before submission. Indeed, 
you can get to the absolute point of a submission technique where there is no hyperextension being done to the limb or the choke isn't being completed, but the position is strong. Indeed, these submission positions can also provide other opportunities not restricted to a lock or the submission itself. The lock can be performed as a complete submission on a more mature student, such as an experienced adult. However, I do not teach children joint locks as part of their basic self-defense course. Richard also says, Many of the traditional martial arts place a great deal of emphasis on kata or forms. Do you personally include kata in your martial arts practice? My answer to that is, I don't teach formal kata or forms as part of my program. It's not that I don't think they're an effective means of teaching, but it's not my area of expertise or preferred methodology. That's the easy political answer, isn't it? However, I promote solo training to encourage better muscle memory and retention of effective fighting behaviours. This comes in the form of shadow boxing and technique calisthenics. Richard then says, In my opinion, everything we teach should be reality-based. But how do we also keep kids entertained and having fun? I believe that the martial arts should be fun. I agree with Ian Abernethy, who in one of his podcasts said that the martial arts should be fun. If it's not fun, you're not doing it right. He then adds, quote, are there any games we can play that will help the kids learn these concepts, but also improve their level of fitness and let them have a little fun? End quote. OK, so reality based is a phrase I'm careful to use nowadays because I believe there is an unhealthy cult of doctrines attached to it, committing the same crimes as we've seen other martial arts commit. I teach self-protection as a self-contained course, and then I advise people to cross-train. They should cross-train in martial arts that are pragmatic and functional, but not necessarily focused on self-defense. I've outlined my reasoning for that in my earlier podcast episode, and it relates to my single objective path. I think it's important to make games enjoyable for children so long as they serve a clear objective. When I say children, I'm talking about six years and up. Under that age, we need to discuss self-protection quite clearly and in an age-appropriate way, but you'll find that a lot of the activities don't make an easy connection for them. But six years and up, we can start trying to do that. I begin with build-up TIG, again, TAG or IT, whatever you want to call it, and simple chase games before layering in specific skills to eventually build up a type of generic scenario game where the children have a limited length of time to escape. Everything from recruiting help effectively from the sidelines to pressure testing the fence to target hardening can be incorporated into these games. They're in my book When Parents Aren't Around and contained in its associated course. I have a variety of striking games that involve attacking and defending the high line and low line. This is great for teaching the switching of levels. There's also good grappling games that usually involve protecting one's back, getting to an opponent's back, or trying to get hold of some type of material object from strong positions. However, sparring should have a big element of fun in general. As I discussed in The Way of the Bear, the more sparring becomes a part of a regular lesson, the less students will fear it. Changing formats of sparring is a great way to focus on individual areas, train for specific objectives, and also keep things interesting. There is definitely a discussion for enjoyment in training. I broadly agree with Ian, but I would be lying if I was to say that each time I need to train, I was ecstatically enthusiastic. Likewise, not everyone likes routines. Many of us are not naturally predisposed to them, and yet they are one of the most effective ways to get good at anything. As much as we need to make training pleasurable for children, and we can help ease the burden of hard work by creating desirable objectives for them to achieve, the hard work is the immovable elephant that has to be addressed in the room. 
all students need to understand that mental and physical discomfort comes with the territory. No amount of badges, belts and certificates can mitigate the pressures of improvement. However, you cannot put a value on the feeling of accomplishment that comes from getting to one's goals. Richard also asks, what strikes do you advocate for kids? For example, the palm strike, hammer fist, elbow strike versus punching with a closed fist? The answer is the same for adults. I teach them all. I tend to teach children palms during their self-protection course. There are fewer margins for error when they throw them and less chance of injury. However, when it comes to general martial arts training, I teach all. Hammer fists come into their own when you're on the ground and when dealing with a blindsiding antagonist. Elbows in self-defense terms are really for close range. They can be a devastating tool, but they're notoriously inaccurate. Finally, Richard asks, how much ground fighting should be included in the curriculum? I firmly believe that you should never take the fight to the ground, but I also realise that in the self-defence situation, one might end up there. So what techniques should we be teaching our students? End quote. My The Way of the Shark two-part extended podcast has already covered a lot of material on the pros and cons of ground fighting, so I won't go into too much detail here. Most basic foundation level self-protection programmes should cover stand-up, clinch and ground. I consider being able to effectively and proactively get to a standing position from any other position, including kneeling, seated or on your back, to be a fundamental skill. Damage is often done when a victim loses their balance or footing during an altercation and they stop fighting back. This is why transitioning is so important. Children, due to their size and proximity to the ground, need ground fighting skills. Children need to not only know how to recover from different positions, but also how to control a similarly aged predator on the ground in a non-lethal way. Moving on to Gretchen Carlson's question, and she asks, how do you determine the optimal level of realism when working with minors? Optimal levels of realism in soft skills should be largely guided by what mainstream education is showing to be age appropriate. We should also bear in mind what is known about child brain development, as mentioned earlier. For example, consider when a child first learns road safety and the ability to judge distances. Hard skills should largely be about developing functional muscle memory and desensitization rather than direct combative skills until the child reaches the age of seven or eight. My level of realism is determined by what the young students show me. Once again, this is best done by using simple games. The children, in a way, show you their optimal level of reality through the way they play. It often amused me the common disconnect I would see in a child attending their supposed magic martial arts lesson where they would spar at a tiny percentage of the intensity they would engage in when play fighting with their siblings. My wild animal training family always taught their students to watch animals first before attempting to train behaviours. What they were about to train, after all, was to be a codified extension of these natural behaviours. My father would typically let a new pride of lions into a training area and just watch how they reacted to the new environment. Likewise, getting children to participate in a series of contact games is a good way to assess levels of realism for the participants. After every game, it's very important to discuss the relevance of what is being done and the reasoning behind the games. Subsequent games can include various extra elements that can highlight issues like defeating the bystander effect. The next question comes from Tracy Radley, a senior student of Lee Mullen's excellent Kiru Practical Karate. Tracy is an excellent martial artist and a true fighter. I've seen her in action at my workshops last year and I'm honoured that she chose to experience my coaching. Quote, I was thinking of questions for your Christmas podcast. Forgive me if you have covered it before, but would be really interested to hear your take on self-defence with touching etc. in normal everyday scenarios. A couple of weeks ago, I was out for a run and came up behind a man walking in the middle of the pavement. I politely said, Excuse me, please. 
He turned and then said, sorry, love. But then as I went past, he put his hand on my lower back and kept it there as I went past him. Really made my skin crawl. I'm not sure if stuff like this happens to guys, but it does happen in random places to women. I think we've come to accept that it happens in pubs and clubs, but in the street or supermarket, etc. just seems to be taking it one step too far. No, it doesn't hurt, and it's not really a threat, but it's not pleasant either. Sometimes you just have to move close to somebody to move past, etc. You don't want to create a scene or make hassle for yourself, but should we have to put up with it? How would you react in a similar situation? End quote. First of all, I'm very sorry to hear that Tracy or anyone should experience an incident like this one. My straight answer to Tracy is that whatever you did or didn't do, this is in the past. You went home safe and everyone in your life will be glad of that fact. Please do not add it to the bad feeling you experience with a black dog barking at you for not giving this piece of work a piece of your mind. I've known plenty of martial artists, including yours truly, who have experienced a variety of non-violent situations where they felt eaten up for somehow not doing more. Inappropriate touching takes a variety of contexts, none of which are right, and they all usually share a common motivation, power. From the so-called cheeky patron who pinches the waitress's buttock when she passes them in the restaurant, to the work colleague who purposely lingers with their hug way past the point of genial affection, to the nightclubber who gives the door supervisor an apparently friendly pat on the cheek when entering their establishment. Tracy is right, such behaviours may not be directly violent, but they are violations nonetheless. Unless proven otherwise, they should be regarded as precursors to an assault, often a long game of sorts, and the target should take particular care with such individuals, raising relevant boundaries and adopting a defensive mindset with the offender. What would I have done in a similar incident? I don't really know, as I wasn't there. That is my stock answer to any assault question. All I can tell you is that what I have done in my unique situation throughout my life, I have a variety of justifications and regrets for past actions and inactions against bullies, but I have since made peace with them. That part is very important. I'm also a big believer in picking one's battles. We can all call from the sidelines and offer the benefit of hindsight. This was your judgment call at the time for whatever reason. Don't allow anyone, including you, to tell you that you should have acted differently. As a long-term project, it's a good idea to speak to more people who are involved with the management of places that have developed a reputation for this sort of thing going on. As Tracy says, it's quite commonplace in nightclubs and pubs and we've ended up accepting it. Now it happens in more public places. The answer there is that we should be working from a long-term self-protection perspective to improve such places. This can lead to better policies that can be enforced by the security of these establishments. As a society, no one should have to put up with situations where an individual violates another's personal space. Sadly, inappropriate touching goes on all the time in so-called progressive societies that have laws firmly in place that legislate against it happening. Just as there are plenty of individuals out there who have little regard for the law and make violence a regular part of their criminal lives, there are far more who think nothing about inappropriate touching. My fear is that no matter how much we put it into our education legal system, it still won't stop certain individuals any more than it stops them from committing other crimes. Going all the way back to my first podcast, do not confuse long-term self-protection with short-term self-protection. This doesn't mean we shouldn't work harder and there isn't plenty that can be done to improve the situation to prevent these offences from happening in society. Gretchen did have one more question and that was, is a hot dog a sandwich? Looking up at the Wikipedia definition of a hot dog, apparently it is. But it's wrong. The hot dog conforms to a sandwich in the same way as cheese on toast conforms to the definition of the open sandwich, air quotes. But in my mind, 
it is the over-the-top and highly revealing cousin of the sausage roll. So technically, yes, but in my opinion, no. How's that for an answer? Thanks to Richard Gretchen and Tracy for their excellent questions for this show. I have to say I'm regularly impressed by the sort of discussions listeners of this podcast put forward. It convinces me that I'm reaching the right kind of people, and better still, there's a growing community of martial artists who are keen to progress, are willing to apply critical thinking, and not scared to address the proverbial elephants in the room. My apologies for a lack of smoothness here, but some of you might have seen a connection between the animal metaphor for this show and my first book, now in its third edition, The Legend of Salt and Sauce, The Amazing Story of Britain's Most Famous Elephants. Yes, it's a massive coincidence, but I'm going to take advantage. This is not a martial arts or self-protection book, although it certainly featured an adept pugilist of the circus world who became an animal trainer. However, you might be interested in the way I handle distilling myths and legends from history. It's something that will crop up in my upcoming series of bullshit Shih books. Speaking of my books, buying them and rating them on Amazon is a great way to show your support for this show and the CCMA brand. Excellence Publishing currently has my three martial arts books, which are Mordred's Victory, a collection of essays from my early writings that were published in magazines like Combat and Martial Arts Illustrated, When Parents Aren't Around, A Young Person's Guide to Self-Protection, and Rong Fu, which is the prequel to Bullshit Zoo and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work. And they're all available as ebooks. I thought I would also take this opportunity to put some recommendations. Firstly, please check out my regular favourite martial arts podcast. That is the Ian Abernethy podcast, Gretchen Carlson's superb martial journeys, Sensei Ando's excellent Fight for a Better Life, T.W. Smith's ever-impressive monumental kung fu podcast chris jones's superb and always improving kickback and chris wilder's statesmanly the back channel these are consistently high quality shows that i have mentioned many times before on this show i think listeners of club chimera martial arts are very likely to enjoy their material i'm also delighted to see more critical thinking martial arts popping up in the audio format Randy King's podcast is a great addition in this respect. On a mission to resurrect the art of rational debate, Randy invites a variety of guests to contest a topic in martial arts or self-ends. These debates are carefully governed by zero tolerance for the violation of logical fallacy. It's a much-needed addition to true martial arts scepticism. Whilst on the topic of critical thinking, I would be remiss in not mentioning one of the pioneers of online martial arts debunkery, Fletcher Neal's Bullshido, which has relaunched its podcast. Some of you may know that I wrote a review on the first season of Cobra Kai for them, which I later turned into a bonus podcast this year. Bullshido has unashamedly expanded its reach and criticism outside of martial arts. This might not be to everyone's liking, especially when it gets political, but it doesn't detract from the excellent work they do in the martial arts field. This year has been especially productive for me. I've been kindly booked by Kiru Practical Karate in Essex by Lee Mullen, the Oxford School of Martial Arts by Mary Stevens. She is the author of the Warrior Monkeys series of books, which I also highly recommend. And Hinnerup Karate in Denmark by Jan Drachman. And Jan, who I have mentioned recently on a blog, is excellent ambassador for practical martial arts. He has put together quite a progressive group in Denmark. I went there first in 2013. I went over in 2019 and 
I was impressed back then. I am blown away now by the standards. These bookings really stand out because they're martial artists and ones that hopefully will be listening to this show. But in addition to that, of course, I've been taking uh, more corporate bookings. I've been taking bookings from educational establishments such as schools. I'm into the sixth term next year working for a local school. There are institutions uh, that have booked me and also various uh, companies doing some next year as well. I have also hosted my first in a new series of Vagabond Warriors workshops as well as my first closed door workshop for my growing number of private clients. So there should be lots more Club Chimera activity out there and accessible for more people nationally, locally and internationally. It has been a great year for training and working um, with a lot of excellent people. That's it for this New Year's edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Owl Train, Tuned In, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. It helps tremendously. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as Google. Again, a nice review on Google can do wonders for me and the Club Chimera brand. We have the clubchimera.com website, where I post a regular blog on all my teaching experiences. Every lesson that I teach, I write up the content of that lesson. And sometimes it's small, sometimes it's quite expansive with lots of different links and notes. And it's always reposted up across my social media. So there's plenty of different ways for you to get in there and to benefit from the stuff that's been taught in the lesson. Now, I have plenty of ideas for next year's series of podcasts. But they might not be as regular as normal, depending on the demands of several new projects I have in 2020. As you know, I have an increasing number of clients now, so there's an awful lot of attention that needs to be directed there. But I'm not just uh, staying still with that. I'm progressing forward with uh, lots of other stuff as well. And one of them is going to be my long-awaited series of ebooks. I'm getting regularly pestered for the Bullshit Zoo series, and rightfully so. It's something that has been going on over a decade in production and it's something I've been promising really since 2015 and I brought out uh, Wrong Fu to try and assuage some of the people who've been asking me to get on with these books but uh, I, I really need to get on with finishing them. The volumes are all in various stages of completion but what they were is they were all part of one book originally and they all got too big for that so I started splitting them up as a means to get them out faster and that hasn't happened either. So they hopefully will be, well, at least get one edition out next year. Or this year, depending on what time you're listening to this podcaster. Again, this is intending to be an end of December, but really more of a January podcast, if you're looking in the chronology. Uh, I don't have a theme planned for the next show. That's not me being unorganized. I've got plenty of ideas, as I just said earlier on. But uh, if you would like to write in any ideas, I'll be more than happy to address them. Otherwise, I'll just get on with my normal self-indulgence rants and ramblings. Thanks for listening and have a productive and rewarding new year. 